This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. And though it doesn't feel like this now, this pandemic will pass. It won't last forever. And one day, hopefully soon, we will be looking back on it, not living through it. What you've seen throughout this crisis is that the, the union working together with the, 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 the money for supporting people through furlough, the, the army working on the, on the testing, moving people around. But now what we want to do is build back better together. The reputation of the Scottish government tainted. The standing of this parliament diminished. A culture of secrets and cover-up that is only growing and it is all taking place on Nicola Sturgeon's watch. There is a reputation here that I think is uh, perhaps disintegrating before our eyes and it's, uh, it's not mine may, may I say, but Ruth Davison has just gone through there uh, a litany of nonsense. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. Uh, my name is Connor Match, I'm the Deputy Political Editor at The Paper. With me, as always, is Alistair Grant, our political editor, and also our Westminster correspondent, Alex Brown. It's another exciting week of Scottish politics. We're all in recess, which means it's all about diversions. And we have Boris Johnson in Scotland as we speak, in fact, by the time this podcast goes out, he'll have scuttled off back down south. Um Alex, tell us what he's doing. What's he up to? Why is he here? Well, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. The Prime Minister, by the time you listening to this, will have been to Scotland. They will have told the media absolutely nothing about the visit. He will be doing an interview with broadcasters, which uh, newspaper journalists are not invited to attend. We will hear what he says when he gets asked a few questions over a couple of minutes, and then we report back on what he says. He's going to two venues, which uh, you will not be able to access, uh, where he is very unlikely to meet members of the public. It is, uh, I've been to Scotland and all I got was this, uh, not so much as a t-shirt as a four-word interview. <laughs> been to Scotland to see a frigate in a supercomputer because by the sounds of things, he's in Recife at the shipyard over there in Fife and then in Edinburgh, which is not exactly very far for Scottish journalists to go to maybe have a chat with him. <laughs> what does a supercomputer do? Could you, like, is it smart enough to work out whether you went to a party or not can like does it have legal advice what do I, they i didn't actually know what it does i think it's only just smart enough to understand how many letters have been handed into sir graham brady and nothing else that's the whole that's its only only point of existence okay that's fair enough it's probably good <laughs> contact i should i should i should expense a lunch <laughs> alistair what what's the background to this i mean the the, the snp uh, put out a press release yesterday. It's on the front of the National. Um, we've covered it as well. You know, saying that Boris Johnson is a walking advert for independence um, while he's in Scotland. Um, of course, what Ian Blackford didn't say in that was that independence support hasn't changed whatsoever since Partygate. Um, what's the situation? What What's the backdrop to, to Boris's visit up here? Well, I mean, I suppose the obvious backdrop is Partygate, Downing Street party scandal, all the many troubles and tribulations of life in uh, of life in Downing Street. 
I mean, I, th- I think it is true to say that Boris Johnson is obviously unpopular in Scotland. Um, I think our own polling done recently showed that. Uh, majority of Scots, I think pretty much almost 75% think he should quit over Partygate. Uh, I mean, I think that is that is all true. But as you said, the, the polls and the pens haven't really shifted uh, for quite a wee while now. They're basically 50-50. So I can't see his visit to Scotland really changing things in that regard. Um, I think that the other backdrop to it is the row with the Scottish Conservatives. I think it's interesting that he's not meeting Douglas Ross when he's up here. Um, so that will obviously be bubbling away in the background. Uh, and they've also had this announcement over green freeports, which is a policy that's been kind of working away in the background. There's already been announcements in England, and now we've got this uh, announcement over the weekend that there'll be two sites in Scotland yet to be decided. Uh, so I think it's, in one way, I understand why he's not meeting well, as far as we know so far, he's not meeting print journalists in Scotland because he'd get a lot of difficult questions, like he does down south as well. Lots of stuff on the union, lots of stuff on the impact of Partygate on the union that he probably doesn't really want to be hammered with questions over. But he's also got quite, you know, a positive story to tell in the sense of these green freeports, you know, the UK government, the Scottish government working together, doing something that's quite concrete, albeit it is a controversial policy. The Scottish Greens aren't keen on it. They basically call it a kind of corporate giveaway. Uh, free ports are basically the concept of, you know, this kind of area where you'd have tax breaks, free tariffs for companies. Uh, a lot of people see them as basically areas where dodgy dealings can go on. There's kind of claims that they encourage things like money laundering and all that kind of stuff. Um, but he does have that positive story to tell in the sense that the two governments are working together. This is something that's a concrete thing that's going to happen possibly by the end of the year. And yet he's still seemingly reluctant to meet print journalists in Scotland, which I think says a lot. Is it um, a incompetent comms exercise, Alex? Is it cowardice or is it actually quite bright that he's not meeting with print journalists? I mean, I know some journalists more trigger happy than I might suggest that it's cowardice. But I do think... You have to kind of respect the fact that they just don't care and know they'll get away with it. It's, you know, when Corbyn did the Andrew Neil interview and the Prime Minister chose not to, when Good Morning Britain tried to speak to him and he hid in a fridge, he is a man who will never knowingly put himself in a situation he doesn't need to be um, other than child support. So it's it's really, really not complicated. Like, if he, if he, if he does the interviews, he's going to get asked difficult questions and it's not going to be like PMQs where, you know, you get one person stand up and he goes, you're a biased loser. And then he gets another question from someone going, why are you so good at your job? How do you get your shirt so clean? It's it's not that balance. It would be people asking difficult questions that, you know, could then get a line that's negative. Whereas if he does this, you know, he's going to get a straight write up about whatever they're announcing and everything they've done. And he avoids any scrutiny. You know, they, there's no need to do interviews. I, I, I appreciate that's ugly. It's a really ugly part of democracy uh, and a very ugly approach to um you know a free press which you know they are trying to change the rules around fois to make it harder for journalists to ask questions we know that they have previously misled people and you know you've had ministers tweet the emails that people have sent them asking you know pretty innocent questions uh comment requests so it's it is a bit cowardly but if you're in his situation do you want to get asked about all the lying in the parties or do you want to go to Scotland, get in, get out without without having to do anything difficult at all beyond Google what a supercomputer is? It's a difficult situation, isn't it, Alistair, for Douglas Ross, 
given the fact that you know he he the prime minister his leader is is he's up in a, up in Scotland it should be a moment of you know positivity for the scottish conservatives and yet the the party is completely split down the middle um when it comes to to Boris Johnson and 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 Douglas Ross it hasn't either he doesn't have time for Boris Johnson or Boris Johnson doesn't have time for him yeah, it's a difficult situation. I think it just illustrates, you know, the problem that's going to happen if Boris Johnson stays in post. I mean, we've, as we've, I think, spoken about before on this podcast, you know, the ideal situation for Douglas Ross, having called for Boris Johnson to go, would be for Boris Johnson to go pretty rapidly. You don't want him to stay in post and create this awkward situation where, you know, particularly as we go into the local elections and even, you know, it seems unlikely, but even if Boris Johnson stayed in place up until the next general election, a situation where, you know, Douglas Ross is going out door knocking and advocating that people vote for a party, you know, a party that he leads in Scotland with a UK leader that he doesn't think should be in post. And that's just such a difficult situation to be in. It's incredibly awkward. Um, so I can understand on one level why they're not meeting. Um, I think the situation will have to come to a head at some point. Who knows when? Um, I think we've had reports that uh, Boris Johnson will speak in some way at the Scottish Conservative Conference, probably over a video link. So he won't actually be there in person, which will avoid a number of, I'm assuming, quite awkward conversations with activists uh, and his party's MSPs in Scotland. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's really, really difficult. On that, what I would say is about, you know, you mentioned how difficult it will be going forward for Douglas Ross to lead the Scottish Tories, given the spat with the Prime Minister. Speaking to, and this could just be because they're trying to play the line, but speaking to some Scottish Tory MPs, they don't seem to think that it's... Like for me, I think it's over. Like I don't, one of them is going to have to go. It's there is no chance whatsoever that they can do that. But but Scottish Tory MPs seem to believe that oh, you know, it's fine. He's you know the prime minister did exactly what they did at the Scottish election. The prime minister is not on the ballot. We are a separate entity. You know, it's good to have disagreements. And Douglas is a great leader, and the prime minister is his own thing. But I just. I think that's a myth. I mean, all, I don't see how they can do that. And I know that, you know, on the other side, not the Scottish Tory MPs, but those in government, I don't think they, they, they do not think that. I think they expect this to come to a head. Yeah, I have heard this argument as well, that it's, you know, it's not necessarily a majorly bad thing for them for those reasons. You know, Boris Johnson isn't on the ballot in Scotland, but I think fundamentally he is to a degree. He's such a well-known politician. He's so associated with and voters fundamentally don't like parties that are divided and kind of riven with divisions. I mean, we've seen that in the past. So it's one of Labour's problems in the past, this perception that they're a bit of a mess internally. It's just not something that goes down well with voters. So, I mean, it's possibly not such a problem in the local elections. Um, we are expecting them to lose seats just because they performed so well last time comparatively. But it will definitely 100% become a problem in the event of any general election, if Boris Johnson does manage to cling on, which, I've, as I've said, seems seems unlikely when you take that long term view, and and also there's there's been lots of briefings in 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 the nationals down south that you know there's a belief from certain people in government that Boris Johnson you know has a personal electoral mandate, which undermines the suggestion that you know any of the Scottish MPs, the Tory MPs at least. Um, are some sort of separate entity voted for by local people for local representation. But if the last general election was on a personal mandate for Boris Johnson, that 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 includes all the Scottish Conservative MPs. Um, but also, 
a lot of a couple of briefings about the idea that Partygate has yet to see a first real, you know, ballot box test, if you like, um, which the elections in May are 100% an example. And a lot of people, or there's been some briefings in the in the nationals about it, where are going, Boris is going to go nowhere until after the May elections, fine or no fine, if the Conservatives bomb uh, in, in that election, then there's serious question marks over his future because at the end of the day, all the Conservative Party care about is winning. The question is, is whether or not that flies with the MPs in the interim if Boris Johnson gets a fine. And I don't know, Alex, what whether or not you think one or either is more, more likely. It's actually really funny what you say about personal mandate because I just got off my phone some tweets from Lucy Allen MP, uh, never knowingly not a galaxy brain, who um, tweeted about Sir John Major when he, because Sir John Major made an intervention, as he does probably most days, saying Boris Johnson's damaged politics or whatever. And Lucy Allen tweeted, trying to remove an elected PM with a huge personal mandate midterm is anti-democratic, subverting democracy, do it through the, the ballot box. That was uh, last week. In 2019, it's time for Theresa May and her new deal to go. Uh, it's time to start again with a new leader. Uh, so, you know, they, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. These people think that having, like, the idea that because Boris won an election, he can break the law and it's all totally fine um, is so absurd. Uh, and I think there was, uh, but then I think the same MP then wrote a letter to one of her constituents saying, actually, you know, I support the Prime Minister, but if it comes out that he's broken the law, he, is, he would probably have to go. So they're doing the very public, like, oh, I stand by the Prime Minister, I'm, I'm you know, a loyalist. But then maybe, I think privately, a lot of them accept the fact that if he's caught, he's got to go. I mean, are they going to say they're the party of law and order when they've got a prime minister who broke the law and lied about it? You, that, you, you cannot do that. Forget the whole Douglas Ross thing. You knock on doors and you go, well, your family died. The prime minister was partying and he stood at the ballot box and he told the MPs he didn't the ballot box, so the dispatch box, and told MPs that he didn't. He told you he didn't. And he pretended to be shocked. So I, I, if he's fined... I do not see a way back. I mean, I know there are some Tory MPs thinking ride out because he's a Teflon prime minister who rides everything out. But there would be enough of a backlash, both just in the media and generally, he would have to go. Yeah, I thought, I think there was a briefing in the papers a few days ago as well. Basically, this situation, I think it was some kind of Downing Street source or something like that, saying that the police should think long and hard before mm. they issued a fine because by doing so, they are effectively, you know, potentially removing a UK prime minister. Implicitly, it's just such a crazy implicit, thing to say. I mean, it, it's got to be treated like a normal citizen. It's know? also implicitly accepting, isn't it, that you know by going, oh, if the Met, you know, you know, Met have to be very. I think it was very certain, wasn't it? Was the language, you know, whether or not to give him a fine? Because do we want the Met police deciding who the prime minister is? And that implicitly kind of ex- <laughs> shows and accepts that a fine for the prime minister is the end of the road. Yeah. You can't you can't have it saying, oh, well, the Met Police, you know, big warning, a fine from the Met Police is very bad news. The Met Police have to be very certain and then turn around after a fine and go, oh, no, it didn't matter in the first place. You know, the briefings are so funny. They've, they made out that like he's totally innocent. And uh, and then they've and then it changed to like he didn't know about the party. And then it went to, well, he maybe did know about the party, but like he he was there. He didn't realize it was a party. Uh, and then it was, oh, well, actually, you know, if he did go, it, it didn't mean it. Uh, but we're going to get a lawyer to check because he now thinks the line's now, you know, actually it is his workspace as well. So that's the only reason he was there, as if that wasn't what everyone was doing during a pandemic. Um, and the fact he's hiring a specialist lawyer does not necessarily suggest innocence. 
And we also know that he's already looking at jobs in America where he can make a lot of money. So it, it's, it's so it's so ridiculous. Like I don't know how this is even a debate. Like you got caught. Like if any of us had gone to one, we would have to disclose it in all future jobs that we had a criminal conviction, right? I oh, know. Well, actually, no, it's fine. But you would probably have to disclose it. I, we would probably have to tell work if we got caught uh, because you've broken the law. And he can just thinks he can just get away with it. Uh, and it's like being politicized. It's it's a real it's really really ugly. I know it's funny because the, uh, the the excuses are so bad, but it is actually a really uh, unsettling part of our democracy that this is the approach they're taking to it. Let, let's shift on to some good news in inverted commas. Is there Alistair, any? Alistair, you mentioned uh, green ports. You know this is this is arguably quite good news for the UK government that they they've pushed the SNP um, potentially with the help of finance. Secretary Kate Forbes into accepting a couple of of green ports, um, but it's caused a. I mean, for anyone who has read the cooperation agreement between the SNP and the Greens up here, um, it's not a surprising schism between the two parties. But that doesn't mean that many people have actually read the document and understand that it has caused a bit of a split between the SNP and the Greens, and also the left wing of the SNP. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's caused it's caused a bit of a split. I mean, it's not, as you say, it's not surprising. I think the, you know, the SNP initially weren't keen on the UK government's free ports idea. They had their own version called green ports uh, that kind of focus more on decarbonisation, on stuff like fair work, um, all those kind of issues. And there seems to be some kind of compromise reach. There's going to be these green free ports, a kind of a, a compromise between the two visions, essentially. And like you say, I think the perception is that uh, Finance Secretary Kate Forbes is a bit more... Um, kind of pragmatic in her approach to the UK government and kind of helped this along a little bit. And she says that basically uh, the SNP is more keen in the idea now because they've got a kind of equal say on where these free ports will be based. They've got more funding, I think, committed from the UK government. Uh, they've got this kind of green aspect to it, this focus on decarbonisation, which is obviously important for those net zero targets, um, something the UK government cares quite a lot about as well. Uh, and they've got kind of fair work, this idea of fair work embedded at the heart of it. So there can't be a situation where companies are using this scheme to kind of undercut pay and conditions for workers, which I think is one of the concerns that trade unions certainly have. And I know trade unions, or certainly the STUC, I don't think it still doesn't want this, still is not keen on it. The Greens don't like it at all. Uh, Ross Greer, the Green MSP, been quite outspoken about it. So it is, I think it's one of the first kind of major public policy divisions in the sense of something that's actually happening between the Greens and the SNP in government. And it just shows, you know, they have, they are in a cooperation agreement, but it's not a full coalition. So they still have this situation where they can kind of disagree on certain topics, uh, almost like this New Zealand model of government that they always talk about, uh, which happens obviously in New Zealand as well. So it's interesting. It will be um, quite a few months before anything happens about this. I think they're talking about getting them up and running before the end of the year, potentially sites being chosen over the summer. Uh, there's a lot of areas I think will be quite interested, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Recife. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, well, while we're talking about the SNP Greens, there's also a, a very decent front page on the Herald um, at the end of last week from talking about the fact that the SNP and the Greens are going to draw up an independence prospectus um, in the in the coming months for 2023. Um, I mean, it, it didn't seem... Like there was much new, Alistair, in, in in that story, other than the idea that the SNP are going to work together on what might happen after independence on a few issues. The Greens will obviously have 
their own views on on you know foreign policy and and certain economic principles that we, where we know they disagree with the SNP. Um, does it does it change much um, when it comes to IndyRef2 and, and and the general argument? Well, I think it's interesting. So Lorna Slater, the Green Minister, was basically saying that the Greens will contribute to the Scottish government's prospectus for independence, um, which we're expecting to be drawn up in the coming months. Um, however, they will also be publishing their own one because, you know, as we were just talking about with the Green Ports, they have areas in which they have agreed to disagree with the Scottish government. And we know they have different policies around stuff like NATO, their policies in currency are, are, are different. So although they'll draw up this joint prospectus for independence, they'll have to also outline where they would maybe do things differently. And at the end of the day, I suppose they are not that surprising in the sense they are a different political party. You know, they're not the SNP. They have different ideas about what independence would mean and the opportunities, you know, they think it would it would uh, throw up. So I don't think it's that surprising. I think it is interesting though. And it's interesting to, yeah, it's, I think one of the things we don't know is if there will be another white paper produced like we had in 2013 or if we'll get a series of documents on different issues, exploring stuff like the border, currency, all those kind of things that have come up. Um, I mean, I think one of the issues I know we've talked about before is that there's so many unanswered questions around stuff like currency, around stuff like the borders. It just doesn't seem like there's a lot of time to get the stuff thrashed out considering how complicated it is. And there's certainly not enough time to have a proper public debate about this. Uh, with Lorna Slater and Nicola Sturgeon both saying that they want to hold this referendum before the end of 2023, it just seems like we have this really strange situation in Scottish politics where we're talking about this as if it's a possibility. And I suppose you have to take politicians at their word to some degree. If they're saying that, you know, they want to hold it then, we've got to report on it and, you know, act as if that's a possibility. But it just seems so unlikely. It's just such a short space of time. You know, we've just come out the back of a pandemic. I'm not even sure how many people in government would actually want it to take place before the end of 2023, considering the polls haven't shifted at all. So it's this weird situation where we're all talking about it and it's there in the background but it just seems like it's not going to happen so it's yeah it's bizarre it's a handy little you know diversion tactic isn't it for the snp to to throw it forward and talk about um you know what might happen in independence you know talk about the possibility and the prospect of an independence referendum and that there will be answers provided particularly after the last week of um, I think I wrote in the Scotsman this morning, you know, pensions-based self-immolation, um, which was, you know, a week of saying stuff on a on an issue they essentially, you know, partially lost the first referendum on, have no further answers seemingly um to that to that problem. Their position potentially has changed on such a huge issue for one of the major um voting blocks in Scotland. Um and here we have on on a sat on a Saturday in in the Herald a, an interview going well we'll we'll answer that but just give us give us a year um, and it's it's a nice way of talking about it without talking about it yeah I think the pensions issue is a classic illustration of just how far we've got to go I mean it's totally unclear whether the position had changed or whether there was just really quite poor communication from the SNP on this and just confusing uh, you know Ian Blackford saying one thing it being clarified produced basically a week of stories that I'm pretty sure the S&P could have done without. So there's just, it just shows how far we've got to go and how much still has to be thrashed out. Uh, and yeah, how, how confusing the issue still is. Is it not, and I and I say this, you know, well aware that I'll be letting down the comment section who love to call me a Sturgeonista, but is it not just really embarrassing? I mean, like if you've, if you've lost the referendum and you want to have another one, 
you want to be watertight. I mean, I know SNP MPs want to, want to be at 60% in the polls before it happens, but good luck with that. But you have to have answers for every question. You can't have any doubt. And, the, and I think, and I, you know, truthfully, I'm not sure a better argument has come out of the SNP beyond the UK government is bad and doesn't represent us. I am not hearing any argument for independence that says we would be able to do this, this and this and this that is sincere and not just a, the UK government is bad and we should not have to be a part of it. And it has been so long. It has been so long. I, if, if you are a one issue party and I'm, you know, I'm not taking away from the SP's domestic record. I mean, that's a whole nother show, but I don't understand how you don't. Surely this is like the focus. You have to have answers to every question and we're still talking about the money. And they still don't know quite what it's going to be. I mean, how long ago was a referendum? And now we're thinking, well, we're not going to have time for a public debate on how that's going to work. Yeah. But they don't know. It's it's really embarrassing. What have I, they been doing? I, I would argue that part of the reason for that is the fact that the SNP's leadership hasn't changed really meaningfully in the last, in the, in the eight years since the independence referendum. I mean, if you think back to 2014, the, the high profile figures in the SNP were Alex Hammond, Nicola Sturgeon and John Swinney. Um we're eight years on. Alex Salmond is still banging the independence drum from a you know a, a position where no one is listening, but he's still around in, in the debate. Nicola Sturgeon, for all of her very good qualities, I think has a general policy creative weakness where she struggles and the SNP generally struggles to come up with creative policy solutions for for problems they face. John Swinney is a similar person and a similar, you know, a political mind that that isn't a political a policy genius. They they these 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 SNP figures tend not to have that sort of um, creative outlook, um, and you, you can see it in their domestic record. A lot of the stuff that they promised when they came in in twenty eleven hasn't progressed. You know, we've we're what 14 years into longer <laughs> into into an SNP government we don't have a replacement for council tax in Scotland that was a central a central tenet of, of the SNP manifesto um and i think that that's still going to be the main problem for the SNP is that the politicians themselves don't have any ideas um things like the national care service for example was a scottish labor idea it's a ja- it's jackie bailey's um, idea from from 2008, um, which was has been latched onto by by the Scottish government, and you can tell they don't know what they want to do with that because their entire policy program so far with the National Care Service is asking other people what they should do. Um, there's no grand plan for independence with the SNP. It's get it then answer, and that's their problem. That's going to be their problem with any white paper. Is that get indie done. It is. It's pretty yeah, much just oven ready independence. <laughs> and we'll, we'll talk about the difficult bits afterwards. And I, I, I think until the SNP, you know, really tackle head on those questions, which they just are, they're almost refusing to do um, rather than failing to do. Um, they won't get, I don't think they'll get any further than 50, 50 in the polls. And when we come to an independence referendum, it's still going to be the thing that will likely see them lose. I think I suppose from their point of view, you don't want to outline your vision too soon because you're just giving your opponents an opportunity to pick over it and to see all the holes, which there inevitably will be with something like this. So you want to produce it at the beginning of the campaign period. And I don't think they're, you know, we're just not there yet. Uh, And I think secondly, some of these issues will 
you just can't give solid answers to because you need them to be the subject of negotiation. Uh, I mean, that's a whole other problem in and of itself. But yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely reluctance to get to that actual, you know, the substance of issues. There's a reluctance to deal in detail just because there isn't any detail. Um, and it's, yeah, I think what you said about National Care Service is true. You look at that consultation document, there wasn't really anything about how it's going to be funded, you know, in terms of the actual cost of this, it would be absolutely huge. Uh, I think, you know, from speaking to people in the care services, the expectation would be even more complicated than the creation of the NHS just because of the way care services provided uh, in Scotland and throughout the UK. Um, so, yeah, a lot of details still unanswered. You only have to you only have to look at the SNP's election, uh, you know, material that comes through the door to realise that they have a dearth of creativity when it comes to policy because things that were on there tended to be things that they didn't even introduce. You know, you're thinking, I know it's it's an easy attack line from from Scottish Labour, but I, I think it rings true. It's things like free free university tuition, um, free sanitary products, um, you know, the idea of the National Care Service. All of these things have, be, have been thought up and co-opted by the SNP. Maybe that's the way you stay in power for 14 years. Maybe that's how you win win subsequent general elections. But it it, it it begs the question why they can't answer sim- simple-ish questions on, or at least complex questions as well, on independence. Any thoughts, Alex? Um, not really, other than uh, Alistair is right when he says about how not doing it policy now you know, stops them getting, stops giving uh, the other parties on, uh, ammunition which is a defence that I would probably make over Starmer's leadership of the Labour Party, um, but then would be critical of the SNP for it. So maybe I'm just a massive hypocrite who knows nothing, or they should still be a bit more rounded because it's like a one-party, uh, I know one-issue party, so they should have a better idea. I think, I, think the thing that, I think the thing that makes it difficult is the fact that they're still talking about this referendum being possible before the end of 2023. I think that if they were one in a, a one-issue party, you know, it, if that could be levelled at them, but this and they wanted a second independence referendum, but they hadn't put a date in it. They're saying it's going to be a few years down the line. These issues would be less pressing. They just open themselves up to, you know, attack and people asking for more details and these things being constantly debated and thrashed out because they have that what is becoming quite a strict timeline. Uh, whether or not it's, it's going to happen, they've said that that is their desire. So if that's your desire, you've got to come up with this perspective and you've got to do it pretty fast. I think it's going to be like writing a dissertation, though, working really hard on it at the last minute. But then it'll be like the university say, actually, we don't want you. You, you, don't, you don't even go here. But you can't submit because UK government have no interest. And when you speak to ministers, they're not like, we'll get the can down the road. They're like, it's just not going to happen. They genuinely do not think it's going to happen. Um, so <laughs> maybe there's no point in having an outline because the UK government will say no. And actually, we'll just keep throwing mud for another 10, 15 years. See, I, I, I think there's an acceptance at the top of the SNP that the, the, it, the 2023 figures update is a is a nonsense and and you know is a is a carrot carrot attached to to the independent stick to keep people voting SNP for the foreseeable future. I think nothing underlines that more than the language that they use around it. If you listen really careful to what Nicola Sturgeon says about 2023 and the in Indy Ref two. All she's really saying is that she'll pass the bill by that point. 
to allow for that to happen by 2023. I mean, that, that completely ignores the inevitable court challenge of any such bill, which could take, you know, six months to a year. If that is, you know, lost by the Scottish government, which is probably highly likely, um, there's certainly not, not many legal brains in Scotland who think that they, they wouldn't really struggle to, to win that sort of court challenge. We're into midway through 2023 and the SNP have their next great um, stick to, to bash the UK government which, with, which is that they stopped independence referendum number two. Um, and we're there waiting until the next general election, which is 2024-2025. And Sir Keir Starmer potentially is PM, which is you know, as likely to just say no to an independence referendum as Boris Johnson. And these are all things we could have asked the Prime Minister about at a huddle if he wasn't such a massive coward. <laughs> and with that, <laughs> that is all we've got time for uh, this week on The Steamy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Alistair and Alex, for joining us. Um, and we look forward to seeing what the Prime Minister has to say from the dockyard of Rosyth and the University of Edinburgh. Um, thank you very, very much at home for, for listening with us. Um, we'll see you next week. Goodbye. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman.